Chase Chapman is a DAO researcher and, and contributor. Chase, welcome to the Ethereum Cat Herders podcast. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Okay, so let's jump into it. DAO stands for Decentralized Autonomous Organization, but that's not what it means to most people. What does DAO mean to you? Like, what would we call a DAO? To me, DAOs are more about ownership for people who create value within and around them. I think that we very much absorbed a lot of the philosophy around protocols and networks when it comes to things being decentralized and autonomous, where anyone can spin up a node, where anyone can um, join the network. And I think in DAOs, what this actually needs to look a lot more like is the ownership piece where people can um, actually be compensated for the value that they create. And I think the autonomous element actually does not need to refer to the DAO being automated per se. I actually think it's a lot more about making sure that contributors have autonomy and can act in more of a self-managing way. I think when you look at the history of teal organizations, flat organizations, sociocracy, um, co-ops, all of these things, there's been a lot of movement towards giving essentially what we would traditionally think of employees more autonomy, more ownership, even in the traditional world of startups. And so I think DAOs are sort of the next evolution of that. Mm -hmm. So basically you would say it's any group of people that try to get together. It's like, and I guess a method of coordination in which using kind of the, the whole structure of a DAO, people can have their own independence and being able to contribute without anything else being able to, to stop that. I, I guess I'm still struggling to like pull that into like, uh, this is a DAO, this isn't a DAO kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's always hard to say what is and isn't a DAO. I think that's a big challenge, but to me, it's basically a vehicle for collective ownership. That could mean collective ownership of a product, that could mean collective ownership of a piece of artwork, but fundamentally, I think to me, that's what a DAO is. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of times things that we see called DAOs basically come down to the number of people who are on a multi-sig, like a Gnosis safe or something like that, um, in order to pass certain proposals or execute certain uh, administrative actions. Is that like, is a multi-sig a DAO if a group of people get together and have a multi-sig together where they own something? Um, is that enough to be a DAO? Or do you see that as like a distinct, like a distinct category? I see that as a DAO. I think the intent behind something, especially in the early stages, is more important than the technical implementation of it. If multi-sig signers are honoring the wishes of the group of people who explicitly own this organization, whether that be a community or token holders or whatever it might be, I would still consider that a DAO. And it's interesting when you mention intent. I don't know if I ever thought of uh, looking at DAOs really from the intent angle, but I guess by the same, like by by that same definition, even if someone is using more intense DAO software, for lack of a better term, like maybe an Aragon DAO or something like that, if it's not with that intent of it being decentralized, of giving people autonomy or something like that, I guess at the end of the day, it wouldn't really be a DAO either. Uh, would you agree with that? Yeah, I totally agree with that. And I also think there are organizations from 
the web two world that I would consider very DAO-like that actually aren't using any of the DAO infrastructure that we've built in Web3. I think a lot of them are very interested in using it. Like, again, I think about co-ops, I think about orgs that use sociocracy. I think all of these types of organizations actually look so much like DAOs. They just haven't had the tooling. And to your point, I think on the opposite end, there are absolutely organizations that use DAO tooling that do not act like DAOs aren't really ever going to look like DAOs. Um, And so, yeah, I think it's very much about intent and then of course, following through on that intent. Interesting. Um, How did you personally get involved in contributing to DAOs? I had been building in the crypto space for a couple of years when I was in college and I worked on developer tooling, which was really fun. When I graduated, I started falling down the DAO rabbit hole because I discovered Index Co-op and also Forefront. And I just was really intrigued by this idea of humans in these systems that I had always been really interested in. Like I had always been really intrigued by economics and uh, had done like, you know, model United Nations and in high school and all this stuff. So the human systems that we build and engage with had always been something that fascinated me. And DAOs felt very much like this perfect convergence of economics, human systems, a little bit of politics sprinkled in there for better or for worse. And so from there, I sort of started contributing and got really interested in the gaps in knowledge that existed. It just felt like DAOs were so exciting and so promising and made so much sense, but there was also this sense of, wow, we have a lot of things to figure out. And so I started drawing on existing knowledge and trying to find the right mental models to navigate the space. And that became most of the way that I spend my time now. And I guess maybe if I could continue on that, uh, on that train, um, every now and then with various uh, crypto dramas, that occur, I, I see a commentary of like, it looks like we've tried rebuilding this from the ground only to discover why they did it that way the first time. Do, do you feel that there is a cycle like that with DAOs and the gaps that you're talking about that to some degree we're like, we're gonna build this better system, we're not gonna put all this stuff in. And then like five minutes later after the crisis, we're like, hmm, maybe there was something to that. <laughs> yeah, I think, that happens a lot. What what I think is healthy is questioning why we do things. I think that's really great. I think there are a lot of things that we shouldn't just be carrying over from the existing world into Web3. I also think reinventing the wheel when people have done extensive research and experimentation on things that do and do not work doesn't make sense. So my way of managing that is finding the right mental models. And when I say the right ones, what I really mean is How can we find examples of the same common threads that we're playing with in Web3 and figure out why something that we currently do in the world, again, of like co-op, self-managing orgs, all those things works and doesn't work. And then from there, do the factors that make that thing work or not work exist in the DAO ecosystem? And if they do, cool, that means that we probably can apply that model. If there's something that's very different that actually is the reason for that thing being the way that it is, then maybe we need to either change our approach in DAOs or it's not a good mental model. Like a good example of this might be if you look at the way that a lot of democratic systems are run today at like a nation state level, 
the way that we think about membership to a nation state is you are born into it or you acquire citizenship, but that might not be the best mental model for a DAO building product when it comes to what membership and a say in governance actually looks like. In the same way that the way that self-managing organizations, which often look like companies, um, might be a better mental model because it's people who are contributing and all that stuff, but it doesn't take into account, you know, token holders. And so there are all of these different mechanisms that I think exist in the world for a lot of different reasons. And it really comes down to figuring out why those things exist and then whether or not they apply to DAOs and the vision that we want to see for DAOs in the future. It's interesting. I think this, this might lead into a question that I think applies in a lot of different um, disciplines inside the crypto space, which is um, largely, at least personally, I feel like crypto started off in the world of kind of software development with that, like software engineers, but especially due to the kind of inherent multidisciplinary nature of crypto, it sounds like what you're saying specifically around DAOs here is it might not be enough just to reason about the software. We actually need, I don't know if sociologists, but something like, you know, professionals who have, well, I mean, I'm not saying that software engineers are professional, but um, to also bring in, like, not necessarily the technical professionals, but also the, the professionals from those specific studies and disciplines in order to kind of guide that process also. Is that something that you're looking to see more in the DAO space specifically or something that you think it needs? Yeah, 100%. And I think oftentimes we pull from again, like these computational models for how to organize, like game theoretically correct network level models. And I think that works sometimes. Again, I think sometimes that's a good mental model to use. But I think often what we forget is that people don't work in game theoretically correct ways. They act with emotion and they are very sensitive to power dynamics. And so these things can't be hard-coded on a software level or really reasoned through with exclusively a computational lens. And I think that's something that we often forget about. And I'll also add on to like what I was talking about before. I actually think we really lack terminology when it comes to different types of DAOs. So like when I use the example of the nation state, for example, that might be terrible for a company that's building a product that's used by institutions, but it might be really good for a company like ENS that's building a public good because maybe that is effectively digital citizenship. And so I think all of these models are things that on a computational level, again, like we might not be considering, and when I say computational, I, I just mean using these like rational theories for how people exist in the world when they just don't. <laughs> and so, yeah, I think- Exactly. And I think you can codify things once you've figured out the human element and how they engage with them. But what I think you don't want to do is force people into acting in a certain way because you're going to get really weird results when you haven't brought in the anthropologists and the sociologists and all these people who think really deeply about how humans engage in systems. And I think Honestly, it's like to our detriment to not have these people involved because there are a lot of really powerful tools from a human perspective that we're kind of ignoring. Even things like how do you build a culture around um, a set of norms? Like that is a really powerful tool that you're not leveraging if you're only building with software. Interesting. Hmm. 
I mean, I, I guess in the same vein also, um, I've, I've felt that that when we look at things like game theory, so I, I hadn't thought to put sociology and anthropology on this, but I think there's a good chance they're there too. Um, I, I feel like they might be part of a larger trend of things that largely had to stay academic um, or theoretical. I mean, there are practical applications for them. I'm not trying to say not, but what I meant is that it was hard to convert them into well, I guess a codified algorithm, like we were saying before. And increasingly we're finding right now with game theory, maybe this moves on to sociology and anthropology also with what you're saying about DAOs, um, an opportunity to actually algorithmically try to attempt different, uh, different theories, different models, different frameworks, see how things are reacted to. I, I know that we actually just got finished saying that humans don't necessarily react the way a game theory algorithm thinks that they will. Mm -hmm. but with the ability to apply that in smaller scales to experiment to see to tweak like maybe this kind of goes the way that data science or machine learning and ai which were largely largely theoretical fields that then exploded into very very practical applications maybe maybe we see that applied to other fields also i that, that was just kind of a rambling thought i don't know if you have anything you'd want to add to that or not i think you're right i think What's interesting is that people tend to think that it will be, okay, let's codify this and experiment with it. And what I would challenge that statement on is codifying something should be a response to a system being successful in my mind, because once you codify it, it's really hard to go back, which is the same reason that once you pass legislation in a nation state, it's very hard to change that legislation because there's just momentum. And so I'm a really big fan of really creating a lot of experiments and then codifying things that do and don't work. This is actually a big mistake I see a lot of people making often in the DAO space is trying to automate something before we've figured out what works. And the example that I always like to point to, and this is going a little bit on a tangent, but the example that I always like to point to is Wikipedia. So before Wikipedia, there was an organization that was started by the same, one of the same co-founders called Newpedia. And when he started it, he created all of these rules for what a contribution needed, like all of these different parameters and prerequisites and just a very structured approach where you've effectively codified a lot of rules. And it totally didn't work because no one wanted to figure out the system. A lot of people who wanted to contribute like weren't able to fit within it and it just took way too long. And so Wikipedia was a totally different approach where there were basically no requirements and the community slowly started to create norms around things. And what they effectively created was like the first super successful media DAO and probably still to this day, one of the most successful, what I would call media DAOs. And again, I think there are lots of organizations that look a lot like DAOs, but aren't. And Wikipedia, of course, has some things that make it less DAO-like, but it was decentralized. People could contribute when they wanted to. Like all these things look a lot like a DAO. And the reason that it worked was because they created this container for experimentation and then they codified rules and things that worked and things that didn't. And I think from there is where you get a really powerful system not by trying to like create all of these rules up front and then force people to exist within that system. Interesting. So does that mean that frameworks should try and start off with like as little regulation as possible and then kind of, I don't know if regulation is the right word. I mean, we've been using the word, I think, codification or codification for that. 
uh, or even structure. Uh huh. Uh-huh. So like to start off with as little structure as possible, and then I guess kind of see what natural structure emerges from contribution. Exactly. And what tensions. So if you have tensions that are emerging that you can see that point to the idea that certain parts of your structure don't work or you need other structures to help clarify the tension and acknowledge it and work it out, then you put those in. But I think someone who I'm a really big fan of is Rodney Evans from The Ready. And that's like an organization that helps companies become more self-managing. So they've helped like Airbnb and the Fed and all of these organizations become more self-managing and Dow-like actually. And one of the things that she said was like, how can you create minimum viable governance, minimum viable structures, and then build on top of them? And I think that that is one of the best ways to build organizations because then you create this space for experimentation that feels really productive and then you codify things. But yeah, if you need to codify things from the start, then you do it in a minimum, in the least uh, amount of rules that you can create. And then you go from there. Interesting. Um, does that mean that that these that uh, structure that would follow this especially, does that mean that kind of the culture of what does end up uh, getting put down in terms of structure actually kind of largely molds itself around the early major contributors. Uh, and I guess where my mind is going with this is, so there's not much structure in place, early contributors come and immediately kind of the friction that they find gets addressed and also where they succeed in the patterns that they work in kind of end up becoming, becoming the norm. Yes, I think that's exactly what happens. And I think you could argue that that happens in every organization. There's, you know, the, the famous, I don't know exactly what the quote is, but the idea that an organization takes on the best and worst traits of its founders, whether you explicitly state those things or not, that's what happens in early contributors. And so I think that's absolutely what ends up happening, doing it in a way that's visible is really important. And I think that's where a lot of this stuff around transparency and DAOs comes into play, which is that in an early organization, let's say Facebook, you can now read probably about a lot of the ways in which Mark Zuckerberg and early collaborators and their values and um, systems of thinking played a role in shaping the organization that is Facebook today, both good and bad. And I think in the same way, what you want to do for DAOs is make that type of record of how these things are happening explicit from the beginning. Because not only does that make it easier for newer people who are coming in or looking at the organization to navigate it, but also to change it and to recognize the, the risks or potential flaws in the way that the organization is shaping up based, again, on those early contributors. So I think it totally means that. And I think that that's something that exists across almost every organization. Interesting. Um, I guess once we're talking about early contribution to DAO also, um, something else that the DAO space, at least from my personal vantage point, is kind of famous for 
is a certain model of instead of actively recruiting, which of course devs do sometimes do, but oftentimes having kind of a community around them with contributors who are contributing pro bono or casually, who then as time progresses and the community knows them more and the DAO maybe expands in its needs, they get brought into kind of the fold of the DAO, uh, maybe into paid ranks or something like that. Um, I'm curious about your thoughts about that model. First of all, I mean, is that a model that, that you see with DAOs? And if so, what kind of pros and cons do you see around that? I think how DAOs do contributor, I don't know what the right word is going to be. I don't want to say like management because I don't think that's what it is, but what would traditionally be the recruiting process is different for every org. I think for sure one of the ways that this tends to happen is you have people who come in who do a little bit of work and build up their reputation within an org. And then ultimately they're able to start taking on more responsibility, which essentially brings them to become a core contributor. I think that's definitely a common model. One of the big challenges that I see in DAOs right now that I don't know how to think about yet, but that I'm really doing a little bit of research on is it seems obvious that totally permissionless organizations don't necessarily scale in the way that I think people currently assume they would. So I think the, the current narrative around contributions and DAOs is that they're totally permissionless. Anyone can come in and start contributing and get paid for their contributions. The reality of that is that resources are still limited. And so if you come in and work on whatever you want to work on, unless it's a need that the DAO specifically sees enough upside in allocating resources toward, it doesn't make sense for the DAO to do that. And resources could be getting paid for your contribution, but it could also be someone who's not technical, who comes in and wants to build something, but needs to draw on technical talent to do that. And so I think no matter what, we have this, this limiting resource that is time, money, whatever it might be. And I think that DAOs need to be a lot more intentional about what it looks like to bring people in who are contributors, who are able to access those resources. I think that once you're in, you, you should definitely be able to access those resources much more quickly, but I think DAOs are going to need to be much more careful about what permissioned contribution really looks like. And you also get into this question of how are you inclusive, um, with, with your, with your contributor base, um, if that's something that you value and, and see as a, as a, um, business case, but, you know, from a value perspective also aligned. So there are a lot of different questions about how you curate your contributors. And I think the way that you're talking about is one way that I think is probably a little bit more merit meritocratic, but also ignores a few of the challenges with what it looks like to contribute without pay. Um, there are other DAOs that do just like recruiting directly for talent that they know they need. Um, a lot of DAOs do both of those things. So it's definitely a big question still. And I think the the big takeaway here for me is that permissionless contribution for the most part is a myth. Mm -hmm. Interesting. 
debating if I should dive into permissionlessness because that was something that I wanted to touch on a bit later or stay kind of in the talent retention realm. I think I, I think I will try and stay in talent retention for right now and then try and come back to permissionlessness in DAOs um, and representation maybe a bit later. Um, sounds good. Okay. So, if that, um, so then maybe I'll, I'll keep on going down this with, um, on one hand, DAOs, like so I, if we're going with a meritocratic kind of route, which is show up, contribute what you can or what interests you. Um, and then as you get more like, you know, as you get more into the community, you're able to kind of progress inside the community. On one hand, um, I see people really touting that as like the most beautiful of all methods because it means that you can do whatever you want. If you're looking where to contribute, just look at where you want to contribute and you can, can contribute there. But I think something that you mentioned very briefly in your last answer kind of touched on one of the other issues of like, let's say that there's someone who needs, they need a paycheck at the end of the month, you know? Uh, maybe it's to pay their tuition, maybe they've got a family, whatever the case is. They don't necessarily have three to six months to sit there and try things out in different DAOs and see what works and find their groove and really click and really go with it. Um, it can provide a very large barrier to entry for them to, to find somewhere where they can kind of immediately ramp up and then be in a position where they're able to basically make it through the month. Um, is there, are, are there solutions for, for people who, I mean, let's say come either from a traditional job or have for whatever reason that need for the paycheck at the end of the month, is there a way for them to kind of quickly get themselves into a DAO and work like, you know, and work from inside or is it all just kind of the meritocracy? There are definitely organizations that are hiring directly. I also think that there are certain types of work that are paid. We're at an interesting moment in DAOs right now because I would argue that for the most part, the skills that you start doing are not necessarily the skills that you end up providing if you're joining as a core contributor. So I think very tactically today, there are definitely ways to do this where you could go into a DAO, see what they're actually paying for from a work perspective, find something that kind of aligns with what you want to do, build your reputation, and then take on something that's a little bit more your speed. I think that's very possible. Longer term, I don't know that that will make sense. Um, I think it will probably be a lot more aligned with your interests. I also think longer term, we have tools like Station, Rabbit Hole, Layer 3. All of them are trying to solve this problem of how can you help build an on-chain resume so that you don't need to do work for a DAO right away that's free, but instead you have this sort of resume on-chain that you can point to that says, here are the things that I'm good at. Let's just get me onboarded. So I think those are longer-term options, but today, very tactically, I do think it's possible. It's just about finding a work that is paid, taking that on, and then building a reputation enough to create space for your own work that you'd be interested in doing. Mm -hmm. um, on that note also, I guess, of people looking for work in DAOs, especially people who are coming from the traditional workforce, um, most DAOs, as far as I'm aware, are not legal, legally recognized entities. I know that there's some work being done with like Wyoming LLC and maybe some other laws to try and create recognized legal structures around DAOs. 
Um, but what I wanted to touch on maybe like the advantages and disadvantages of the illegality of uh, of of DAOs. I just to clarify for anyone listening, illegality with an A, not that they're illegal, but just that they're not a recognized legal entity. Um, on one hand, does that does that make a problem as far as employment goes? If an employee is looking for certain either tax benefits or healthcare, or that like the normal kind of things built into the traditional paycheck that that we're aware of. Yeah, so I can't definitely can't speak from the legal entity perspective, but I can speak from a contributor perspective, which is that I think it definitely creates a challenge for people who want to go full time DAO. I think if you're part time or you have other means of acquiring things like health insurance, whether it's because you're in a country where health insurance is provided by government, there are just all these things that traditional employers will provide retirement health insurance, all these things that some DAOs provide and some DAOs don't. But for the most part, you're sort of left to handle this on your own. And there are solutions like Opolis, which is basically like a workers collective, I believe specifically for the US, for anyone who's a DAO contributor in the United States, um, that allows people to get health insurance and run their uh, income through this, this entity. But I do think that right now it's a little bit of a barrier. I think there are a lot of ways to get around this. At the end of the day, working for multiple DAOs is like being a freelancer. It's very similar, at least in the United States. And so I think that it's one of those things that definitely creates more upfront costs. And I also think that's an important thing to consider when you're doing work for a DAO is like, if you have more upfront costs because you're doing freelance work, you need to build that into how you value your time as well, because it's not going to be like a traditional company. If you have to pay your own health insurance, that is a cost that you would typically get as an employee with a salary that you wouldn't be getting. So I think that more than anything, it's very much something that could be navigated from my perspective, which is a U.S perspective. And I will say, I definitely can't speak to the challenges in other countries, but um, it's definitely not impossible to navigate. It's more a matter of making sure that you're building in and acknowledging that there might be additional costs and other things to consider when you are doing DAO work. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Do you see any specific advantages from DAOs not necessarily having a legal entity around them? I mean, I, I guess I suspect there can be less overhead than spinning one up if they don't have to worry about incorporating, but is there anything else maybe you see as a specific advantage? I think we're going to see over the next year whether or not there are advantages from a legal perspective, again, speaking from a U.S. regulatory angle. I'm really eager to see how some of the regulatory bodies respond to DAOs becoming really large in the way that they have. And I think we're going to continue to see some of the top crypto companies becoming DAOs. I have yet to speak to a crypto native organization that doesn't want to transition to becoming a DAO. So I think as DAOs become more prominent as these important structures, we're going to see whether or not there are advantages based on how regulatory bodies treat them. What potential advantages do you see there, if you're willing to speak to that? 
I think there's probably, um, I'm definitely not a legal expert. So I, I don't know that I can speak to a lot of this stuff, but something that I know in theory, people have been really intrigued by is this idea of like, how do you regulate a decentralized organization that truly is run by so many different people and owned by so many different people. One of the things that I hope happens is that we have an updating of traditional securities law in the United States, because it's does not make a lot of sense. Um, but I'm not, I'm not sure. I think there are definitely a lot of other people who would be better <laughs> at speaking to the legal advantages. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I, maybe if I could try rephrasing that though, in a, in a world where there could be a certain level of regulatory capture, if there's something to capture, there's a hope that DAOs as a new structure might be able to evade some of the more predatory capture that exists, for example, in the US securities law or things of that general sort by virtue of kind of it being a new organization, perhaps. I think that's one angle. The other angle that I think a lot about is when you think about the way that a lot of securities law is intended to protect people who are quote unquote uneducated or um, at risk of being like scammed. I think that is more exciting to me is actually this idea that by DAOs, reimagining the ways in which people who create value can own an organization, people who are in a community can own an organization. I'm hoping it becomes a forcing function for changing how we think about, regulate, and actually mostly regulate access to ownership for individuals. To me, that's the really big promise of where DAOs are going, because ultimately it is about collective ownership. And I think, yes, it's important to make sure people aren't getting scammed, but I think there are definitely people who are being scammed from investing in shit coins. There are also people who are being scammed on discord by getting their private keys socially engineered out of them. So I'm, I'm very, I'm very much excited about the prospect of DAOs being that forcing function for reimagining what collective ownership can and should be and empowering individuals to become owners as opposed to limiting access to only the wealthiest individuals in this country, which I think is already a system that is not one that we we need to be continuing forward. Mm. So maybe to, to try and dive into the, like, you know, to the concept of collective ownership then, um where do you see collective ownership as or a revolution inside collective ownership as something that can kind of help with the the system as you were just describing it maybe with the lack of wealth distribution or with the inequality that we're seeing current in the current system i think ownership like anything is a tool and it's a tool that's been limited in access to the wealthiest and most powerful individuals. And so when I think about what collective ownership means in DAOs, I think about this idea that people can come together and use ownership as a tool in a way that hasn't really been scalable before. A really interesting example of this that I personally love is the crypto cookout, which was this movement by um, Amir... Uh, who goes by Sir Sue on Twitter. And he, well, he and a few other like collaborators, but 
he he had tweeted a lot about it. So if you want to learn more about it, I would check him out. Um, but anyway, so he came together with a few other people and basically recognized that CryptoPunks had a like very low price for black and brown CryptoPunks. And all of like the white CryptoPunks were at a much higher price. And so what they did was they brought together a bunch of people, tweeted about it, all this stuff, and did a party bid for a black CryptoPunk and then a few more CryptoPunks. And what that did was it raised the floor for black and brown CryptoPunks. And it also gave all of these people who participated, many of whom, including myself, would not have had the funds to buy a full CryptoPunk, um, fractional ownership of one. And what that demonstrated to me was two things. One, ownership is now accessible for anyone and everyone. And I would consider Crypto Cookout a DAO in and of itself. But two, ownership as this like tool for a social movement is incredibly powerful because by saying we're going to buy this punk because we believe it shouldn't be at this price, effectively like the DAO said and made a social statement and, and pushed a social movement forward. And to me, that is really, really powerful. So when I think about what collective ownership really means, I think it's going to be used for social movements in the same way that Twitter really um, empowered people in the Arab Springs. I think that's going to be, you know, one of one of the tools that we're going to look back at is ownership and be like, wow, that made a big difference. I also think, and we're already seeing this a little bit, like these types of things are going to be used in wars. I think this will all be um, an effect of giving groups of people power and a tool that can do a lot in a society. Um, so yeah, that's, that's my, that's what I think is going to happen. I will confess that I did not have crowdfunding a war on my 2022 bingo card. <laughs> right. I don't think a lot of people did, but here yeah. we are. I so I guess in that vein, um, when you talk about collective ownership, a lot of it is also the ability to quickly organize a collective in order to own something and to use your crypto cookout case. So it wasn't just the ability to pull the funds together. It was the ability to kind of coordinate that quickly and bring people together quickly before like moment, social momentum would die out or something like that. It, yeah. Yes. And actually give them something that represents their ownership on a technical level. So you were given, they use, I believe party bid uses fractional art. And so fractional is the implementation of, ERC-20s that give you a share over an NFT. And so I think it was the ability to quickly do this and the ability to say, we're actually going to give you something in return for this that is a like hard, explicit representation of your ownership over this thing. Because otherwise you can do a Kickstarter crowdfund and Kickstarter has done amazing things for people. But being able to get something in return that then not only has instant liquidity because there, there's a pool on Uniswap for this, but also that represents your ownership in a way that no one can take from you. Like it's the whole, your private keys um, give you control over this thing in a very hard way. Um, to me, that's the other aspect that makes this really powerful. Interesting. Interesting. So maybe to shift subjects a bit, uh, something that we touched on before was permissionlessness inside uh, inside DAOs. Um, 
maybe just to make this a bit of a long-winded question, one of the things that I feel like we say in the space a lot is that everybody should be able to have a vote, everybody should be able to contribute, everybody should be able to have to have their say. Um, you mentioned before that there's an issue with this that it makes things really hard to scale. And if you take, it's probably unfair for me to take the United States of America, which is one of the most populous countries in the world by population. But even if we take a smaller country, say one that only has 10 million people in it, if everybody has a voice, we're going to spend a long time listening before anything gets done. Um, an unreasonable amount of time, even before anything gets done. As damn scale, how do they deal with this kind of on one hand, everybody should be able to have a voice, but on the other hand, like at some point, things actually need to get done too? I think there are a few things that come to mind. The first is that I think there will be tools that help, and there are already some tools out there that help listen at scale. And I think that is an interesting development in all of this that I'll just say before I go into my current thinking, because I think my thinking on this is evolving a little bit as I learn more about different tools that might be able to help with the scaling of listening. But I think the main way that we're going to be dealing with this and what makes a lot of sense to me is a modified version of representation in the way that we have in democracies like the United States. So today you vote for your local politicians who you essentially delegate decision-making to. You vote for your national level politicians, which you delegate decision-making to. And we know the system doesn't work perfectly, but it's not terrible. And so that's your way of voicing your opinion. The problem with that type of delegation, and this is the problem more broadly with a lot of hierarchical systems, is that it's generalized for the most part. So you're voting for um, Congress people, for example, who are making a broad range of decisions that, to be honest with you, they're not qualified to make all of those things. <laughs> they're just not. And so I think there are certainly examples of local and national level politicians who you vote for, for a very specific role. Um, and I think that that totally is, is an interesting case study, but to me, the way that DAOs will scale is delegating decision-making to very specific individuals, not for a broad range of topics, but for a very specific expertise. And by doing so, you end up with a much more effective system because you don't expect one person to know about 27 different things that they need to make decisions on. Instead, you choose 27 different people. Now, that's a lot of decision making. I think we need to figure out how some of that stuff scales. But to me, that's what's really exciting. And so even when you look at something like meta governance today, so this is kind of a, a tangent, but I think it's an interesting one. Meta governance, for anyone who's not super familiar, is effectively when a, a, something like a DAO has tokens that actually give them governance power over um, uh, other DAOs. So an example of this might be that Index Co-op, which is building index funds, kind of like BlackRock, by having index funds, they own uh, or have um, 
a lot of different tokens that actually grant them governance power over things like Uniswap and Aave. And by having that, effectively, Index is making decisions on behalf of Index token holders um, in these organizations. What I think is going to start to happen is right now you're giving like generalized decision-making power to any meta governance delegates in other communities. So you might have someone who specializes in Aave, let's say, and they're making all the votes there. But like, even then that's a lot of decisions to be making. I think we're going to have delegates who delegate to other people. An example of this might be, let's say that index holds ENS tokens, which I don't believe they do, but let's just say they do. You might have individuals who've been delegated uh, tokens, but they might be like, oh, you know what? I'm actually not the most educated on diversity, equity, and inclusion. I'm going to delegate all of my votes to She256, which is an organization that helps women and non-binary people like find mentors in the space um, and all that stuff. I'm going to delegate my DEI decision-making, diversity, equity, and inclusion to them. And so I think you're going to get subject matter specific delegation at every level. And I think that is what's going to create this system. And you wouldn't be able to do that in a, in most democracies today. Um, and you're also not able to do it in a way that's super transparent because it just doesn't exist, but all this stuff is actually on chain. And so that's sort of a, a tangent, but I think what it's going to come down to is subject matter level delegation and normalizing delegates delegating to other people in a super transparent way, as opposed to this like back room, black box where nobody knows what's actually happening, which is, I think, a lot of the problem with most, like whether they're democratic or not, systems. Very interesting. I One thing that came to mind when you were saying that also is in traditional voting right now, um, which you described as, say, voting for a representative and then delegating a certain level of uh, decision-making to them, is there's a lot more fluidity with the on-chain system also, which is if mm -hmm. I don't like my governor, there's really not an awful lot I can do about it. Whereas here, the ability to migrate delegation and to kind of vote with your feet exists, I'd say, at a much more rapid and much more granular level. And you can choose to vote directly if you want to, which I think is really powerful, where delegation is the decision in and of itself. You're not forced to delegate. I think as we have more complex systems, we're going to have to figure out how this works. Because again, for example, in the Uniswap ecosystem, you have to have at least 2.5 million uni to put up a proposal. That is not going to be feasible for most people. That's a lot of money. But I do think what we're really building is a series of systems that you can opt in or opt out of. And delegation is something that you can opt in or out of, which is not the case in a lot of democracies today. Very interesting. And so I guess really a robust delegation system and being very mindful of delegation structures when we engineer these systems really ends up being a very critical component for creating good infrastructure for being able to come to reasonable decisions, but not just that, also for allowing as many people to express their opinion as possible. Yeah, and I think it's one of those things that I was talking to Danny Zuckerman from uh, Ceramic, who is so good at thinking about these things. And one of the things that he was saying is, I was sort of talking about how I'm 
trying to draw the line between governance and ownership and where all these things fit in and what role delegation plays. And he had this fantastic point, which was basically that if you delegate only to experts or sorry, if you give all decision-making to experts and you don't have this level of delegation and accountability based on sort of democratic processes where people choose to give you a vote, people are going to make decisions that don't take into account their constituents. And that's not necessarily a good thing. Usually that's a bad thing longer term. On the flip side, if you have a totally populist vote on every single thing, not only do you have voter fatigue, but you're not always going to get the best decisions. People don't want to be making those decisions. And frankly, people, again, are like not all qualified to make 27 different decisions that are very in-depth, detailed questions. And so what you want is something that's actually in the middle. And this was his point, because you want experts who are being held accountable by constituents. And when you when you have that balance is when you have the decision matrix, including the expert, what makes the most sense in this field, given my expertise, and what do my constituents want? And having both of those things included in your decision-making matrix is really powerful. And um, that just like blew my mind when he said that, because I was like, oh yes, that totally makes sense as, as sort of the, the balance that we're striking here. Very interesting. I mean, another thing that we see happens in kind of the populist paradigm is um, kind of instead of appealing to reason or having actual arguments behind things, interested parties can just kind of appeal to the crowd. And to an uneducated audience, it can be very easy to sway them, either with misinformation, with actual falsehood, or things that don't really make a difference. Um, I, I see how that would play into something like that very deeply also, the need to make sure that we're getting not just a professional opinion, but that the, incentive, the, the incentives for those providing those opinions actually give us some level of hope that they're acting not, a, not necessarily out of their own best interest, but in, well, I, in their own best interest, that would be the case, but without the ability to insert a different agenda in there to try and sway us with information that maybe shouldn't. Oh yeah. And I think the transparency element here is going to be really important. One, there was a study out of, I think, Chile, where they basically studied prices of gas. And what they learned was when you have areas that are, no one really cares about the gas price, people start to um, basically like keep upping their prices. Um and no one does anything. So I'll, I'll give a little bit of context for the study. Basically in Chile, there was, um, I don't remember if it was government mandate or what it was, but effectively a website that gave everyone in different regions, all of the gas prices on the website. So like people could check them always. And it was kind of a study in what does transparency do for people and, and how does transparency change systems. And one of the really interesting things was that in regions where people didn't check the gas prices on the website, like they could tell by tracking IP addresses, um, the gas prices were way higher because no one checked them and no one cared to like basically hold companies accountable or gas stations accountable um, by market forces, by like not buying there and buying at different places. So everybody raised their gas prices in places where people did check where you had really high traffic on this website, you had much lower prices. And I believe, um, even when they held socioeconomic factors, uh, like constant, this, this trend still happened. And what that, 
what I think that can teach us about governance and delegation is that when everything is transparent, it doesn't effectively totally change the system right away. But when you have people who are holding others accountable and actually understanding the data and like sharing that with people, you have this effect where um, you actually can have these forces working. And I think what's going to end up happening from a governance perspective that we don't see as much today because that data is not there because we can't make it entertaining, all these different things, um, is that we'll actually have like basically delegates who, or, or people who delegates employ perhaps, um, who effectively like, what's, what's the right word, translate the data that is existing on chain and make it entertaining and interesting. And I think what my hope is, is that we end up having this like source of truth that becomes really effective because people actually pay attention to it as opposed to no one paying attention to it and people just projecting their own stories onto it and using it to manipulate a conversation. So I'm very hopeful that transparency will help here. I'm also with a little chilly example, recognizing that if no one cares to actually look and understand what's happening, it doesn't do anything at all. Interesting. Um, we're getting close to time. Uh, maybe as a last question, uh, kind of zooming out for a second. In a world where there are so many DAOs and there are so many initiatives and so much of everything going on. So I guess first, how do you keep up with what's going on? And maybe second, um, is there, I mean, everybody likes to talk about how crypto is 24 seven. And while there are a lot of really amazing things that does, it can also produce a heavy level of burnout and fatigue from just the constant fire hose of new things, information, price, whatever the case is. Um, can it be draining to keep up? And if so, what do you do? Or would you, what would you recommend in order to prevent burnout for someone who's trying to get into the space and keep up with it? Having been in crypto for a while was useful because I'm not trying to learn as much of the foundations. And now I'm learning at the DAO level, which has made it a lot easier. So I can't speak to how overwhelming it must be to fully immerse yourself in everything and try to learn it all at once. I would say my single thing that has been very useful to me over the years has been figuring out what you can ignore. There are a lot of things in the space that people get excited about and act like are this like huge deal or this thing you have to know about that you really don't need to know to understand what's happening. And that you'll probably rediscover when you're at a stage where that feels effective for you. To me, one of the best ways to do that is like, find people who you can talk to who have gone through the rabbit hole recently and can sort of help tell you what you don't need to know about. Um, so I think that's one thing. I would say the other thing is not staying on Twitter 24 seven. I think that's where the burnout stuff happens. I personally have been taking more breaks from Twitter and that's been very useful. I think once you spend more than an hour or an hour and a half on Twitter, you're probably experiencing uh, reduced marginal benefits from every minute that you're on it. Um, so I would say if from a burnout perspective, right, that's negative. one. 
Yeah. If not route, right. Just negative. Um, I, I would say, yeah, after you pass like two and a half, three hours, you're probably just experiencing negative, um, negative, uh, benefits, which is just not good. Um, the other thing I would, I would really suggest is muting, um, at roles and at everyone's on discord. So you can change your notification settings so that you don't get notifications unless you personally are tagged. I think in the early stages when you're not getting tagged and things on discord, that's probably harder, but I would absolutely mute channels regardless and only focus on a couple things that you care about. What's not going to help you is diving into every single DAO that you've ever seen deeply and then shaming yourself when you don't get to all of it. That's just like never going to be effective. You're much better off maybe checking out a a few, but then actually focusing on one or two DAOs. I would suggest one, um, starting to dive in, getting an understanding for who's who's in the community, reaching out to people if you're interested in exploring and using that as your home base and then venturing out from there. Otherwise it gets really overwhelming and it's not really going to get you that much benefit. There are new DAOs every day, so there are just going to be way too many. Oh, the one other thing I would suggest that I, I forgot to mention is if you do want to get involved in a DAO, I'm not sure if this is going to be the best advice, but it's advice that I've been thinking a lot about. If you want to get more involved more quickly and you want to have an influence in something, a little bit of an earlier DAO might be better. I'm not saying like brand new, but one that's definitely still figuring out what's going on um, while also having really great structure. And I would recommend doing that over trying to get involved in a DAO that's really far along um, or really, really early but I don't know if that's good advice. We're going to see, but it's definitely something I've been thinking about because when I got involved with Forefront, for example, it had existed for many months, but it was just starting to open up a lot more contributors. And that really helped me learn a lot, a lot faster. Excellent. Well, Chase, thanks for coming on the podcast. Um, Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. This was so fun to chat.